you because we know this is not about us, but it is about you. It is about our Savior Jesus. It is about what he has accomplished. And as we come to this text that may not be exceedingly familiar to some of us, but is exceedingly important to all of us, would you give us joy in this magnificent picture of the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ? Might we love him because we have seen him more clearly this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have just sung of it that there is no one who is comparable to Christ. There is no one that relates to him in identity in that there is no one who is identical to him. While he is a man... He is the God-man, and He is set apart. He is distinct. He is unique among all men. There is none like Him. And the glory of Christ is not just that He has come, but the glory of Christ is that He is coming again. That theme of the coming of Christ is one that dominates the Scriptures. We find it repeatedly in the Old Testament. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He says, Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jeremiah 23. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And behold, Ezekiel 43, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar. And I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the house. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Fell on my face. Daniel also. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, the clouds of heaven. Like, uh, and, uh, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Zechariah as well. Even before Zechariah 14 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim 
and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The king is coming. It's not just an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea. The angels also said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way that you have watched him go up into heaven. Matthew 24, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall down from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate from them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus Himself promised it. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. First Thessalonians chapter 3, So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Lord, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that, First Peter says, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested with fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness and justice he wages war and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Honestly, I wrote that and I actually I copied and pasted and I thought I ought to just say amen. Let's go home. Isn't that glorious? Doesn't it just saturate your heart with hope and confidence and joy that everything that is wrong will be made right on that day? Oh, the scripture just saturated with this confidence of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and of all the passages in the Scriptures that speak of the coming of the Lord Jesus, perhaps the greatest of these is Zechariah chapter 14. The significance and power of this chapter simply cannot be overstated, says one of the great commentators on this book, Charles Feinberg. Few chapters, if any, in the scriptures are of greater eschatological significance than the chapter that is before us. After 13 chapters of prophetic visions and after chapters of 
oracles against the nations and for Israel, this chapter stands above the rest in this book as a crescendo of hope and praise. And the focus in this section that I want to look at with you this morning, verses 6 through 9, very simply is this reality. Christ. Now, here he goes somewhere. Off, on. There we go. Christ will come. My... uh, just got understated by a faulty remote. Christ will come. Christ is coming. And in His coming, Christ will be King. Christ will rule. Christ will be authoritative. And brothers and sisters, what we want to see this morning is that God has not only chosen Israel as His people, but he has pro- as He has promised to be Israel's King, but He will be King over all. He will be king over all the earth and he will be our king. We do not know the time when he will come as king, but he will come as king. There is no uncertainty about whether he will be king. He will be king over all. And Zechariah gave this truth to the people who had gone back from Babylon into the nation of Israel and they're rebuilding the temple. They still haven't rebuilt the walls. That's another 70 years or so away before they do that. And they still see, even in the rebuilding of the temple, oppression from outside. And there is discouragement and despondency. And he is giving this revelation of the coming of the king to give them hope and encouragement and joy. Just because there's oppression doesn't mean that Christ won't be king. He will be king and he will rule. Rejoice, O Israel. He's coming as king. And rejoice, brothers and sisters in Granbury. He will be king. Let us rejoice then as we look at his kingship and to see two particular aspects of his role as king. He will be king. How will he be king? Rejoice in him because he is king of all the earth. He is king of all the earth. We find this in verses 6 through 8. And we find three manifestations of his kingship in the earth. First of all, he will provide a new light He will provide a new light. And he starts in verse 6 with that familiar phrase. We've seen it or will see it in chapters 12 through 14, 17 times. Some variation of this phrase, in that day. And that little phrase, in that day, is the pointer to the day of the Lord. It's his shortened form of the day of the Lord. He's looking forward to the, the millennial kingdom, the time when God will put down all of those who are in position to him, Christ will come, he will ascend to the Davidic throne, and he will rule on the Davidic throne for a thousand years. In that day, he says, there will be something unusual that happens. Now, when Christ comes in his day, the scriptures tells us, uh, tell us of a number of different phenomena that happen in the world that are going to be unusual, particular. So Christ's coming will come will be after the tribulation and the tribulation is going to be filled with all kinds of uncommon what we would call natural disasters though they're coming directly from the hand of the Lord things like famine and forest fires and plagues and scorching heat and the drying up of rivers massive hailstones somebody showed me a picture recently about a hailstone at his house and it was the only word for it was it looked wicked. I mean, you know, when you see a hailstone, normally it's kind of round-ish. I mean, this thing was like four to six inches long, and it had all these spiky things coming off of it. It just, it looked horrific. It looked like something out of a horror movie. We're not talking that kind of hailstone. We're talking 100-pound hailstones coming from the hand of God against unrepentant earth and unprecedented numbers of deaths. 
You know, everybody was all up in arms about all the people who died in COVID. And people did die from COVID. And I don't mean in any way to diminish that. But there will be one plague that will hit this earth. And a third, excuse me, a quarter of the population of the earth will die in one day. One fourth. And there will be another one after that, that a third will die. So in two plagues, half of the population of the earth is gone. From 8 billion to 4 billion like that. It's unprecedented. And following those things of the tribulation in the day of the Lord, when He comes, there will be earthquakes and famines. Joel tells us in chapter 2 that there will be wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. It will be, Amos tells us in chapter 5, a day of harshness. Listen to what he says at Amos chapter 5, verse 18 and following. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion or a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light and even gloom with no brightness in it? It will be a day of harshness and judgment and bitterness. And it's that very thing that Zechariah is pointing to here in chapter 6. In that day, there will be no light. There's a number of phenomena that happen in the coming of the day of the Lord in these verses. The first of these is that there will be no light. And to make his point that there's no light, he also says in this verse that the luminaries will dwindle. That old phrase, there's no light, refers to the fact that there is no natural daylight. He uses a word that refers to daylight. So you walk outside and the light that you normally have that comes from the sky, it's not there. It's gone. It's diminished. It's gone away. There's nothing of light. We have a total reversal of Genesis 1, 3 to 5. Where God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now God has said, let there be no light, and there was no light. And some have said it's just kind of gloomy and shady. I don't think it's that. I think it's darkness. Because the luminaries have dwindled. What does he mean by that? The luminaries are things that um, are noted in Scripture to be things that are precious, valuable. They're scarce. not always used about um, the sun and the moon or the stars and the heavens, though it is used in that way here. It refers just to things that are particularly precious. And he says the luminaries, the things that are in the sky that illuminate and are precious will dwindle. And he's pointing to the fact that they are irreplaceable. When they are gone, we're left with nothing In fact, he says, they dwindle, literally, they congeal, they fade to black, and it's darkness. Uh, Some of your translations, I think think the New King James Version and perhaps the ESV say something like this, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And the Hebrew text is... A little bit difficult here to sort out exactly what's going on and what is meant. And good translations and good commentators take it both ways, translating it either the luminaries dwindle or there is no cold or frost. I think given that Zechariah is pointing to the fact of the absence of light, it makes sense to say that there's going to be no light and he extrapolates further out what that no light looks like or why it happens by saying the luminaries have dwindled, the luminaries have darkened, the the world is black. He's reminding us that God is holding all these things in His hand and they can be taken away like that. And while the world will be darkened, there's something else That goes on here as well. It's not just that the world is going to be plunged into physical darkness. When the Bible talks about physical darkness, it often is also 
referencing spiritual darkness. Consider for just a moment Jeremiah chapter 4 as an example. Jeremiah chapter 4, he says in verse 23, I looked on the earth and behold, and this is a passage in which Jeremiah is anticipating captivity in Babylon of the nation of Israel, actually of Judah, and he's looking towards their captivity in Babylon and this judgment against them for the rebellion. He says in 423, I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void. He's thinking back. It looks to me like Judah is just like it was before the earth was formed in Genesis 1. And to the heavens and they had no light. And I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking and the hills moved to and fro. And I looked and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the heavens had fled. And I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. And so there he is equating the darkness and the blackness and the gloom with the anger of God and the justice of God. Or think about John chapter 13 where it accounts how Judas had left the disciples and left them from the upper room to go and betray Jesus. Jesus said, what you are desiring to do, go and do. And it says Judas got up and left and then John makes this editorial comment. And it was night. And John does not mean us to understand, well, it was just dark outside. I'm just giving you a time reference. He means us to understand there was a darkness of soul in Judas in that statement. So when the scriptures are talking about darkness physically, they're often also talking about judgment. And that's also going on here. It's not just that it is dark. It is not just that the light has faded. It is judgment for sin. The world is a dark and sinful place and it will receive the judgment that accords that sin, that matches to that sin. And then, into that darkness, verse 7, it will come about, middle of the verse, that at evening time, at evening time, what do you think about at evening time? Well, for till the last week, prior to the last week, at evening time, you're thinking, the sun's going down, there's respite from heat, right? The sun's going away for 10 or 12 hours. And there is a reversal here. The light is not going away at evening. Notice what happens. It will come about that at evening time, there will be light. Like creation in Genesis chapter 1, this light will seemingly come from nothing. And this light is coming out of what we would think is the natural order. It doesn't come in the morning, but it comes in the evening. And God is yet again demonstrating His sovereign power. And we also understand that this is a very different kind of light. This is not a created light, but this is a supernatural light. It is a light that flows from God Himself. We see that not in this text, but we will see it in Revelation chapter 21. I saw no temple in it in Jerusalem for the Lord God, the Almighty and its Lamb, and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 23, Revelation 21, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Chapter 22, And there will no longer be any night. And when he says there's no night, he doesn't just mean there's no more darkness. He means what? There's no more sin. It's eradicated. Everything that is associated with darkness is gone. Why is it all gone? Verse 20, verse 5 of chapter 22. And they will no longer have need of the light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Everything 
that is associated with sin, wrath and judgment and gloom and oppression and distress and death. All of that is gone and it is replaced by the illumination of Christ on his throne. The reformers had a saying to reflect the brightness of the gospel coming out of the dark ages and the oppression of the gospel and the loss of the gospel in Roman Catholicism. They developed a saying that's actually on the large um, stone carving of the reformers in Geneva. This three-word Latin phrase, post tenebrous lux, after darkness, light. After the darkness of the dark ages, comes the light of the gospel. After the darkness of the world comes the light of the glory of Christ. In that day, MacArthur says, out of pitch darkness, the blazing glory of Jesus Christ will appear and it will appear eternally. The very course, Feinberg writes, the very course of nature is changed. For the day is darkened to night, and the evening sees light. In the hour of deepest gloom and blackness, God causes the bright light of his deliverance to shine forth for the distressed ones. Oh, brothers and sisters, he's coming, and he's coming with light. And he will not only provide light, but he will provide a new day. Verse 7. This same time he said, there will be, for it will be a unique day. Again, he's referring to the day of the Lord. It's, it's that day. But it's not just that day. He says it is a unique day. And that word unique is literally the word one It will be one day. It will be a singular day. It will be a day like no other day. Zechariah tells us what is particularly unique about this day. Notice what he says. It will be a one day, a unique day, a set-apart day, a particular day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night. He's reiterating what he has said in verse 6. It's not daytime anymore. It's not nighttime anymore. It's Christ time. We don't mark things anymore by the cycle of 24 hours of day and night. There's no more sun in the heavens. The sun in the heavens is gone. The moon is gone. The stars are gone and there's one light to illumine. There's one light by which we mark all things. We no longer mark the day by the rotation of the earth in front of the sun, 24 hours. Because the sun is gone, replaced by Christ. We no longer mark a year by the travel of the earth around the sun because the sun is gone. There is now one day, it is the day of the Lord. There's no more 24-hour days. It's every day is Christ's day. On this future day, What God has created in Genesis 1-5 will cease and be gone. Interestingly, the first time that we see this phrase one day is Genesis 1-5. And the Lord created light and dark and it was one day. But there's one day coming that will supersede the creation of of Genesis 1-5. This is an entirely new day. With a whole new world order. Not marked by the succession of days. But one eternally unending day. And that is what makes this day unique. And while this is the initiation of the millennial kingdom. That day. That one day. That unique day. It's also a time in which Zechariah is anticipating the day of eternity. The unending day when we will be with Christ and enjoy him forever. Notice as well that Zechariah says about this day. Verse 7. It is a day which is known 
to the Lord. That is, God alone knows the details of that day. And God alone knows how to carry out the details of that day. God alone is sufficient and powerful to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in that day. And only He knows when that day will arrive. No one else knows. Matthew 24 tells us that even Jesus in His humanity did not know that day or of that hour. He alone knows. But He does know. And that means that it is certain. It means it will happen. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we don't need to be discouraged by sin. We don't need to be discouraged by death. We don't need to be discouraged by oppression. We don't need to be discouraged by everything that we see going on outside these walls. Christ is coming and there's a new day coming with him. And we need to rejoice in that. Thirdly, he will not only provide a new light and a new day, But verse 8, he will provide new waters. And in that day, again, the millennial kingdom, in that day, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ is on his throne, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. And didn't you love that picture in Ezekiel chapter 47? It's just a little trickle and you go, what's the big deal? And then it's ankle deep and you go, okay, it's a little bit bigger. And then it's knee deep and then it's waist deep. And then I can't even swim across it. It's this massive flood of water that's coming from the throne of God. It's water that is flowing here again as another unique transformation of the day of the Lord. Interestingly, currently, the city of Jerusalem sits 300 feet below the Mount of Olives. And for the water to flow, there's got to be a reformation of the earth. And so Jerusalem is elevated and Mount of Olives is laid low. And the trickle of water now goes out, then will go out from Jerusalem to all the nations. Not just Israel, but notice he says it will go towards the eastern sea. And the other half toward the western sea. To the east it goes to the Dead Sea. To the west it goes to the Mediterranean Sea. And it feeds all the other Nations, not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth as well. Jerusalem is a source of water for the nations. Notice this as well. That the water flows suggests that there is no longer any rain, but that the land is returning to an Edenic kind of existence. The way it was in the Garden of Eden, where there was no rain But a mist used to rise up from the earth. And now the mist doesn't rise up from the earth. But the water flows from Jerusalem. Out to all the extent of Israel. And out to the nations. And this water supply he says is limitless. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Jerusalem is somewhat like. Granberry, in that it's dry in summertime. I won't ask how many of you have lost your tanks this summer, right? Everything is dried up and crispy. And from that, even in summertime, the water will flow endlessly. And in wintertime, when it might freeze up, the water will flow endlessly and the land will be arid and there will be, according to Amos, unsurpassed fertility in the land. It's a glorious time. But as with the two preceding verses, there seems to be something else going on here as well. When he speaks of living waters, he's obviously talking about water that flows. We have the geographic landmarkers. It's clear He's talking about that. We go to the book of Revelation and we see the water flowing from the throne of God and feeding the trees so that the trees become the healing for the nations. The very same thing that Ezekiel 47 says. And Ezekiel 47 makes clear it's literal water flowing from a little literal throne in Israel. But this phrase, living waters, is used in other ways as well. It's not just 
physical water, but it is spiritual water. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. What's he talking about? They've rejected me, God, in favor of something that is not God, that will not sustain them spiritually. And so there he uses the image of of living waters as spiritual provision, spiritual care. That's obviously what Ezekiel is doing in Ezekiel chapter 47 as well. We find that same thing in Revelation 21 and 22. In fact, in this very section in Zechariah, we find this very same idea. Remember 13.1? In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. There's water flowing out that is for spiritual restoration. It's not just physical provision. It is that, but it's even more than that. It is spiritual provision. And ultimately, even Jesus himself uses the very same phrase to refer to himself as a source of living water when he talks to the, uh, talks to the Samaritan woman. And when God promises a source of new water, he's not just saying, you're not going to be thirsty. He's saying, friend, you will never desire and long for anything else you will be satisfied spiritually in that day. Everyone. My friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, know that one day He will come. This day is coming. It is certain. You can trust that. And on that day, you will be accountable to him for everything that you have done. And if you have rejected him, he will hold you accountable on that day. But this passage is a reminder that what he will do in that day is already available to us. He is already the source of light. He is the source of truth. He is the source of eternal life. He is the source of forgiveness. You can go to those waters of forgiveness and find cleansing and washing away for your sin already. You don't have to wait for that day. You can have that day now. But in order to have that, you must repent. You must turn away from your sin and you must turn to him in faith that he has died for you. And if you trust him, If you turn away from that sin and you trust Him, He will grant to you life and forgiveness. I want you to notice something else that's in these verses. Let me summarize it this way. Zechariah is talking about a new day that's coming. But in that day that's coming, there's also in a sense not just something that's coming, someone that's coming, but he's talking about a recreation. He's talking, in fact, if you will, about an uncreation. In verse 4, the Mount of Olives is uncreated. The Son of Man comes, Jesus Christ, and His feet rest on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is not only divided, it moves And where God created it to be, now He has uncreated it. In verse 6, light is uncreated. Genesis 1, 3-5 is undone. In verse 7, the cycle of days is uncreated. In verse 8, the provision of rain is uncreated. In a sense, God is dismantling His creation. To what end? To provide something that is infinitely better than what we have in this creation. The light of the sun and moon is replaced by the glory of Christ. The cycle of day and night is replaced by eternal day. 
the provision of rain is replaced by a river of physical and spiritual restoration. And all of these hint at the coming new creation of the new heavens and a new earth. He's making a new place, friends. A place where there will never be suffering again. And you can rest in that. When Zechariah revealed this prophecy, the nation was still prone to discouragement over oppression from the nations. They had abandoned the rebuilding of the temple, according to Ezra chapter 4. Their joy was gone. And this book is written to stimulate them to have joy and to have confidence to be obedient now because of the day that's coming in the future. Supremely and ultimately, their joy not was, in the, was not in the finishing of the building of the temple. Supremely, their joy was in the coming of the Savior. And they were to rejoice in the one who is sovereign king of everything on this earth and all things spiritual as well. And brothers and sisters, that's where our joy is. The king is coming and he will be king. And everything untrue will be made true. There's a second reason for joy. It is given to us in verse 9. Rejoice in Christ, who is the King of all people. I want you to see in this concise verse, this pivotal verse, two realities about Christ the King. Christ is and will be King. We know that Christ is already King. We know that Christ is doesn't need to ascend to the throne. He's already done that. He is already in the heavens. We see that in Acts chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see that He is co-regent with the Father. He is at the throne with the Father, ruling and reigning as co-regents already. There's no question about the kingship of Christ. There's no wondering, will He be king? No. Christ is king today. But while he is king today, there is, as there often is, even with kingdoms on this earth, a pretender to the throne. A usurper who is illegitimate that Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2 the prince of the power of the air. He's a prince. He's not the king, but he's a pretender and he's trying to ascend to that throne. He's trying to knock Christ off that throne. He's trying to knock the father off that throne. He will not accomplish that. What we're going to see in this verse, the reality that the Lord is king over all the earth is already certain. Revelation chapter 20, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And after that time, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the Lord, verse 9, will be king. He is king. And he will be king. On that day, he will ascend to the Davidic throne that has been promised to him from eternity past. And he will climb that throne and he will sit in his seat, never to be removed from his kingly position. No more usurpers, no more pretenders. He will be king. We've already had a glimpse of this. Chapter 2. Verse 10, sing for joy 
And be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. I'm coming and I will be with you. And here we see I will be king, never to be usurped. And so the final Adam, it is said, will possess the dominion that is lost by the first Adam. Christ will be king. And not only will he be king, note this as well, he will be the singular king over every single person in every single nation. I was trying to find a short way to say that, and I thought, yeah, I can't do it. It needs to be longer. He is one king over every person, over every nation. He will be the singular king. Note this, in that day, that coming day when Christ will come and be seated on his throne, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. What does that make you think of? Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are no others. There is no other Lord. There is no other king. There is no other sovereign. There is no other majesty. There is no other glory. There is one king and there is one kingdom and there is one object of worship and all pretenders and all false gods and all false prophets and all idolatry will be eradicated. And that authority, he says, will be over. Notice this, verse 9, all the earth. It is over every nation. But it is not just over every nation. It is over every individual. It is over all people corporately and all people individually. There is a totality to his sovereign reign. There will be no resistance to him as he ascends to the throne. The one who is sovereign will reign authoritatively over all men for all eternity. Psalm 93. In the enthronement psalms, we find this repeated over and over. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. That means it's eternal. You are from everlasting. Psalm 97 that we read earlier this morning. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice and let many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes up before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. Give thanks for his holy name. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake, for the Lord is great in Zion and exalted above all the peoples. He is over all the earth. And on that day, everyone will acknowledge his kingship. There will be on that day no more resistance, no more objection No more fighting against him. No more rebellion. Philippians chapter 2. For this reason God also highly exalted him. And has bestowed on him, Christ, the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That happens on Christ's coronation day. He will be king over all the earth 
on that day. And on that day, your prayers are answered. Pray then in this way, Jesus said, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that day, that prayer is answered. A preacher from another generation, G. Campbell Morgan, said to me, the second coming is the perpetual light in the path which makes the presence bearable. I never lay my head on my pillow without thinking that maybe before the morning breaks, the final morning may have dawned. I never begin my work without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. Oh, brothers and sisters, the second coming is a warning to the nations but as a day of immense comfort and immense joy for the follower of God in Israel and the follower of Christ. And as you walk through your daily troubles this week, and you will have troubles, be purposefully mindful of this reality. Christ is coming. And He will be King. And everything that is wrong will be right and everything that is untrue will be made true because He is the King alone. Our Father, we thank You for this magnificent promise about a magnificent Savior who not only has saved us in the past from our sin, but is saving us presently as He sanctifies us. And will save us eternally when he takes us into and preserves us through glory for all eternity. Oh, thank you, Father, for this magnificent promise about our magnificent Savior who is coming and who will be king. We pray these things in his name, for his glory, for his exaltation. Amen.